0: If you had some young Christians, and I don't mean young necessarily in their age, perhaps they were, but young in their faith, new Christians, and you wanted to instruct them and in how they should relate to other people, what would be the first topic that you would talk to them about? Would it be you know, business ethics, being a Christian at work? I think that'd be a good topic. Uh, maybe submission to authority? whether it's the government or whoever else, that'd probably be a good topic as well. Well, that's not what Paul did. Paul spoke about sex. The very first thing he talked about was sexual ethics. And, uh, you know, we live in a time very much like the first century Roman uh, Empire, like these, these Christians that were at Thessalonica, these new believers that needed to be instructed in how to relate to other people. You know, in, in our land, in our nation, there's rampant sexual deviancy. And it was like that in the first century as well. And it it raises the question about how important really is our sexual behavior? Because as I see uh, far too many Christian marriages fail, I see far too many uh, single Christians uh, moving in with one another and living together before marriage, uh, which is a violation of God's plan for our lives. I see too many uh, people who are married, uh, people who are divorced, giving no thought whatsoever to God when it comes to their sexuality. It's as if God exists on Sundays at a church location, but He doesn't really exist in any other part of my life. And we've really become, I think many Christians have become, sexual atheists when it comes to sex when it comes to anything relating to uh that area of life uh god it's as if god doesn't exist we just don't even give him any consideration whatsoever even though he's the one that created sex even the one who set the boundaries for it uh it's as if he doesn't even exist so does sexual behavior even really matter i mean is it important or is it just something oh that's just It's just what I do. I can just sort of do my own thing and it doesn't affect anyone but me. Well, I think it absolutely matters because that idea that it affects no one but me is absolutely wrong. Your sexual behavior affects others and it also affects your own spiritual growth. And so it's very important that we get this right. And I think that's some of the reason that Paul addressed sexual ethics first in this section of... uh, 1 Thessalonians, you know, in the first three chapters, we've journeyed through three chapters now, 1 Thessalonians, in those three chapters, Paul is setting everything up. He spends more time setting up these final two chapters than he does actually addressing the, the exhortation that he wants people to understand. And so in the first three chapters, Paul's recounting the story of the Thessalonians and his relationship with them. And he's, he's remembering back when, you know, I, I was with you and I had to leave and, um, and remember this and I wanted to check on you. And so I sent back Timothy to you and he gave a report and I'm so glad to hear all of that. Paul spent three chapters there and now the next two chapters, this is where we really get to the exhortation. This is where Paul says, here's what you do. Here's how you live. And so the the thing we need to understand is that if we are going to be holy, and that's the exhortation that Paul has for these believers, that they be holy. That's the essential theme of chapters 4 and 5, that they be holy, that you and I be holy. And if we're going to be holy, we must, absolutely must have good, uplifting relationships with other people. In other words, you can't be holy if you cheat people. You can't be holy and you can't grow closer to God if you lie to people. You just can't. How you relate to other people affects your relationship to God. And so Paul instructs uh, us in, in this first part of chapter four to love other people, don't defraud them, live in peace with them. And this has to be true of our words. It has to be true of our actions. And there's probably no deeper damage that is caused to the souls of other people than when we misbehave sexually. And so it is more important for us to get this right than perhaps any other thing because the damage that can be caused is so great. And so we're going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to read the entire passage, then we'll go back through and look at it carefully. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul says, Finally then, brethren... We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So... He who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now we're going to uh, look at a number of principles that I want you to take note of. The first one is simply this. Spiritual growth can only happen when you obey God sexually. Spiritual growth can only happen when you obey God sexually. In verse 1 again, we read, Finally then, brethren... We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that, you, that as you receive from us instruction as how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. You know, when Paul went to the Thessalonians, he hadn't been with them for a very long time. And, and, and in spite of that, even though he was only with them perhaps a number of weeks, he had already instructed them how to behave sexually. That was part of his talking points. That was part of his instruction. In other words, one of the first things that Paul taught these new believers was to obey God sexually. I mean, so why did Paul mention that? You know, these are people that he barely knows, people that he won to the Lord. Why would he uh, have the boldness to go and talk about such an intimate subject? Why is that so important? Well, you've got to understand Thessalonica, it was a seaport. And so there were a lot of strangers that came to the city and they would depart shortly thereafter. And people, you know, even today, people go out of town, get away from other people, get away from their spouse. It's real easy to cheat. It's real easy to do things that you wouldn't do if you were here and you were accountable to other people. You know, a little bit of illicit fun kind of thing. The opportunity for sexual sin was right there. And so Paul... I think that was at least part of the reason that Paul felt it necessary with so much sexual deviancy and illicit fun, as they might call it, uh, occurring there in Thessalonica that Paul knew that they needed basic instructions in this so that they did not destroy their own lives. You know, people think, well, I, I can get away with that. You know, no one will ever find out. But that's not true. God knows. God is watching. He knows everything. And not only that, but you've got to understand that sexual sin affects your marriage even if no one else ever finds out about it. I mean, how could this be? You know, if, if someone committed sexual sin and, and their, their spouse didn't find out about it and no one really knew about it, how can that affect my marriage? That's because it affects you. Sexual sin affects you. Even if no one ever finds out about it, it affects your soul, it affects your spirit. And it will affect your marriage. And so what Paul is saying in verse 1 is, listen, I've already taught you how to live and please God. And so keep it up. This instruction that I gave you, remember it and excel. I want you to excel even more in this. So he commends them for living the life that he wants them to live. The second principle that I want you to understand is this. The Lord Jesus commands you to obey God sexually. This is not a request. This is not a 10 ways your life might be better if you decide to follow this this advice. This is a command. This is, like someone in the army with the drill sergeant, a command. There's no other option but to obey and if you disobey, it's obvious that you're disobeying. The Lord Jesus commands you to obey God sexually. Verse 2, listen to what Paul says. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. This comes from the Lord Jesus. And so whether you obey God in this or disobey God in this, you've got to understand you're involving Christ in this christ is involved in your decision you cannot just i'm gonna forget about god and sort of do my own thing no christ is involved no matter how many kind of mental gymnastics you want to go through to try to forget about god as you want to disobey him christ is involved listen if your pastor were exhorting you that should be enough because scripture says to obey your pastor if Your parents were instructing you in this. That should be enough. Scripture says to honor your parents. But this isn't your pastor. This isn't your parents. This is the Lord Jesus himself instructing you. This command comes from someone greater than your pastor with more authority than your parents. It comes from Christ And you already know this. I mean, this is something you already know. Look at verse 2 again, the first part. It says, for you know what commandments we gave you. Paul says, listen, I've already told you this. And what's he doing? He's bringing back to their remembrance. And I want you to think about the importance of remembering the things that you already know. I think most of the people and most of the adults in this room have been Christians for a long time and today i'm probably not going to say anything that you would go away from this building saying i never knew that god wanted me to be obedient i don't think you'll say that i don't think you'll go away from this building saying i didn't know that god cared about how i behave sexually you already knew that right i mean you've been instructed in this you've been at church long enough you know these things These Christians at Thessalonica, they weren't with Paul very long. They weren't believers very long, but they already knew these things. And so, of course, any of us that have been Christians for a while, we already know these things. And so it brings to us what we have to have as an understanding in discipleship. In other words, remembering is a key component of discipleship. And we need to remember some things that we already know things that aren't new news to us the foundation of discipleship is remembering not just learning but remembering it's one thing if you're a baby christian and you're taught something and you, my goodness i never really knew that but for us that have been christians for a while there's nothing new under the sun we know but we forget we need, to be remember, we need to remember. And that aspect of remembering is a key component of your spiritual growth. Why is that true? Because if we learn truth from God's Word and then forget it, that's no better for us than if we never knew it in the first place. And so it's, that's why it's so important to continue to come to church boy it's so easy for a christian these days to say you know i think i've heard everything there is to hear i'm just going to skip church this sunday i'm going to skip being with god's people and not listen to instruction this sunday you know the game's on or i just want to sleep in or whatever And and it becomes so easy there's so many other options to do and you know we're so honestly we're so wealthy you might not think of yourself as wealthy but the reality is you probably have the money to go do something on Sunday mornings. It might cost a little bit of money. You've got that freedom. You've got the transportation available. There are other options and availabilities for you. And so it's pretty easy, and I think this is one of the reasons why not just in, in, in our church, but in churches all across the land, uh, faithful, faithful Christians are coming to church less and less often. There, there are other things that we can do. But I want to impress upon you this reality that every time that you decide not to go to church for whatever reason every time you decide not to go to church you're missing an opportunity to remember something that you already know but that God wants you to remember because it would benefit you God wants you to stay on the path and he wants you to not start drifting away Remembering these things is so important. So the more spiritual instruction from good, solid biblical teachers that you can receive, the better. Um, it's so important to remember. Next principle is this. God's will for your life includes obeying Him sexually. People sometimes ask the question, you know, I, I, wanna, I wanna obey God. I, want, I wanna follow His will for my life. I just don't know what His will for my life is. Well, let's look at verse three. Verse three tells us the will of God. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. What's the will of God for my life? A lot of times we ask that question and we by it we mean, what college should I go to? What job should I get? What person should I marry? You know, those are the three big questions that young people ask when they're, Christians ask, when they're considering the will of God and they really, in their heart, they really want to obey God. What's the will of God for my life? God's will is for you to be sanctified. What's that mean? It means to be set apart. It means to be different. It means to be made holy. This is God's will for your life, that you are made holy. And part of sanctification, part of that, one of the essential components of sanctification includes abstaining from from sexual immorality. You know, we know what abstaining means. It means don't do it. Abstaining from alcohol means I don't drink a drop. If you're a social drinker, you don't abstain from alcohol. To abstain means you don't drink a drop. To abstain from sexual immorality means you don't mess around at all. But what does that phrase sexual immorality, I mean, what's it really mean? It's sort of a, It seems like it's sort of a broad phrase, but what does that mean? The term sexual immorality, it means, it's a, the Greek word porneia. We get the word pornography from it. And it refers to all sexual activity outside of marriage. Any kind of sexual behavior that you do outside of marriage, God says that is porneia, that is sexual immorality. Don't do that don't do that and so to understand this verse properly we need to understand that one of the ways you grow as a christian is to abstain completely abstain from all sexual activity outside of marriage now the only way that you can be active sexually and obey god is in marriage if god's will is for you to not behave sexually outside of marriage then the only way that you can be active sexually is if you are married, is to obey God in marriage. Verse four, the Apostle Paul says, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. What does that mean, to possess his own vessel? What does that mean to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor? You know, for the longest time, I thought the, the vessel is the vessel of the body. I thought vessel referred to the body. Um, but, it, but it doesn't. Um, Paul is not saying control your own body. He does say that elsewhere. But uh, Paul is not saying control your own body in this verse. The vessel is your wife. The vessel is your spouse. Paul is saying that you should acquire a wife in a holy and honorable manner. For example, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. It reads this way, listen. It says, you husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker. Literally it says as a weaker vessel. You husbands live with your wives in an understanding way because she is your vessel. She is a weaker vessel. Same Exact same word here. And 1 Peter 3, 7 says, since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Here's the meaning of what Paul is saying in verse 4. He's saying your sanctification, being made more holy, it involves you knowing how to acquire your own wife in a sanctified manner and in honor. What What do you mean acquire a wife in a holy way, in an honorable manner? Paul's saying you've got to treat your wife with honor and respect. Not as a sexual object and not by harming someone else's marriage by going after someone else's wife. Paul is saying the last thing you need to do is to get married to someone just because she's attractive. Marriage is much more than that and uh, that would just be looking upon your wife as a sexual object. The uh, great preacher of the early church was a guy by the name of John Chrysostom. He commented on this passage in 1 Thessalonians, and I love what he said. Listen to exactly what he said. To each man, God has assigned a wife. He has set boundaries on nature and limits sexual intercourse to one person only. Therefore, intercourse with another is transgression. And taking more than belongs to me, or more than belongs to one, and it's robbery. Or rather, it is more cruel than any robbery. For we grieve less when robbed of our riches than when our marriage is invaded. Paul does not mean by the use of the word brother that we are free to sleep with the wife of an unbeliever. Paul shows that God will avenge and punish such an act. Not to avenge the unbeliever, but to avenge himself. Why? You have insulted God. And he himself called you. And in turn, you have insulted him. Whether you sleep with the empress or your married handmaid, it makes no difference. The crime is the same. Why? Because he does not avenge the injured persons, but God avenges himself. And so it's very important that we understand the importance of this. The next principle is this, failure to obey God sexually is akin to paganism. You're engaging in in paganism, really. Verse 5 says, and not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. I mean, it's one thing for people who don't know God to be enslaved to sexual immorality, but it's quite another for believers to engage in any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Paul says don't do it. Don't act like people who don't know God because you do. You do know God. Now, the next principle is this. Anyone who fails to obey God sexually defrauds somebody else. If you fail to obey God sexually, you're defrauding somebody. Verse 6 says, And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you." You know, that other woman does not belong to you. She is not your property to do with as you wish. God has established for you boundaries. These boundaries that surround your life, they create a sphere. It's as if you're standing in a giant ball. And this sphere that is all the way around you, these are the boundaries and you are not to go beyond that sphere. Paul is saying, do not even desire to possess more than what you have been given in your sphere of life. God has given you what you need in your own sphere. And if you violate these boundaries, God, the Lord himself, will avenge. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses, or chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 We read, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This is what the Lord will do when he comes. He will avenge himself. And so do not be like those that do not know God. The next principle is, this a life of debauchery and impurity is the opposite of your calling to holiness verse 7 paul says for god has not called us for the purpose of impurity but in sanctification you know your calling to be a christian has moral consequences you cannot come to christ with the understanding that i'm just going to do what i want There's no submission to Christ's lordship. He's not lord of your life. If you come to him and say, yeah, I want some hell insurance. I want to get get out of hell free card. I don't want to go to hell, but guess what, Jesus? Don't tell me how to live my life. I'm going to do my own thing. There's no submission to Christ and his lordship there. He is not lord of your life if you act like that to him. If your behavior sends him that message, If you're going to be a follower of Christ, there are moral consequences to it. You are to be holy. You are to change throughout your life to become more sanctified, more like Christ. And so God is at work in your life to sanctify you. And you need to be at work for the same purpose. But when you engage in sexual sin, you're fighting against God and you're harming yourself. Now, who in the right mind would ever do that? Who would ever in their right mind logically think to himself, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to harm myself. And not only that, I'm going to harm my closest friend, my loved one, my spouse. I think I'll do that today. And not only that, I'm going to fight against God today. And I'm going to see how that goes. Nobody in their right mind would logically carry out such a plan. But that's what we do when we engage in sexual sin. Verse 7, I love looking at verse 7 and also verse 3. Verse 7 says that sanctification is something God does. Look at verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. It's something that God does. But Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says it's something that we engage in. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So, what's the deal? If I'm supposed to be more holy, is it something God does, or it's something that I do? The answer is both. It's something that God is at work in you uh, to accomplish, but it's also something that you are to yield yourself to God and allow Him to do it. But if you fight after, if you fight against God, and you say, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to behave my own way sexually, then uh, God will still accomplish his purposes, but he may have to bruise you pretty badly to get it done. And that would not be good for you. It's much smarter, much more wise if we cooperate with God for our spiritual growth. And the final principle is simply this. If you don't accept this message, listen, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting God. Verse 8, Paul writes So he who rejects, this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. In fact, Paul goes even further than the principle that I just shared. What I just said was, if you reject this message, you're not just rejecting me, you're rejecting God. Paul goes further than that. Paul says, you're not just rejecting God, but you're rejecting God who gave his Holy Spirit to you. The God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The implication... By adding that phrase, the one who gives his Holy Spirit to you, the implication is that a failure to be moral sexually means you're rejecting the moral lawgiver. You're rejecting the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. Sexual sin sends a message to God. It says, God, I don't want you. It says, Holy Spirit you're not welcome here do you today really be really want to be the person who says to god through your sexual misbehavior holy spirit go away god i don't want you we have to be careful In this, I think if we understand the depth of the message that we could potentially send to God through our misbehavior, we would understand why one of the very, in fact, the first thing, the very first thing that Paul says in his exhortation to the Thessalonians beginning in chapter 4 is behave sexually behave you know it is certainly difficult for us to live a holy life when we live in a society that's just a swamp of sin and fraudulent sexuality just a, a pigsty of sexual deviancy but this is what Christ has commanded us to do and he hasn't just said good luck you're on your own no he's given us his holy spirit to help us so what do you do if you know you 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 mess up or you've messed up you know what do you do if uh, you've made some bad choices i mean has god just rejected you has god just doesn't love you anymore no listen all is not lost but you You need to understand that if you disobey God sexually you put a great burden on your spouse and you'll have a very hard time trying to repair that breach of of trust but if Christ is present in the marriage he can help facilitate the forgiveness and the restoration that takes place please if you hear nothing else understand this that when Marriage vows have been violated. It doesn't necessitate the end of the marriage. Christ is greater. Grace is greater than our sins. Ruth Graham Bell had a simple statement that I absolutely love, and I think I want to leave you with this. A happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. So how's your forgiving going if you're married? Be a good forgiver. Strengthen your marriage and draw your spouse and yourself closer to Christ.